Hotel history is created for adult audiences. Content may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised. You're listening to Hotel History. We take you with us through the sordid history and scandals of some of the world's most famous and infamous hotels. I'm Dieta. And I'm Yael. Let's get started. Today we're talking about the Savoy Hotel in London. It has witnessed over a century of London's history. We'll talk about its connection to the arts, hosting celebrities, writers, and musicians, and how it played a role in shaping London's cultural scene. So let's start with where exactly the Savoy Hotel is, because if you're like me and have never been to London, then you don't know anything about the geography there. So it is actually on the Thames, which is the gigantic river that runs through the center of London, in the city of Westminster on the Strand, which is a major thoroughfare that runs through um, this West End part of London. And you may have heard of the West End because that's where all of the theater happens in London. Also, if you Google Savoy Hotel, a bajillion Savoy Hotels will pop up. (laughs) So be, be careful. You have to specifically write the Savoy Hotel in London, because a lot of people use that name. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of them just named their stuff after this hotel because it's such an icon. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, it's been around for a really long time. A lot of people might have heard of it, but we're going to go deep into its origins, (laughs) (laughs) deep into the history of where even the name Savoy comes from. It this reading about this. I started to realize how old England is. Yeah. And maybe I'm stupid. I know it was old, but I'm like, damn, that's like. Yeah. Because, well, we've done all American hotels. So we're like, this one's 100 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that a place could exist. like, Really, if you think about it, what was happening in America in 1500? conquest (laughs) not nothing good so that's why it was so interesting to to read that the savoy hotel the property it's on had a very long interesting history so in 1246 so just think about that how long ago that was that's insane. Uh, (laughs) king henry the third granted the land between the strand and the thames on which uh, a palace was soon to be built, to the uncle of Queen Eleanor, who was Peter, the Count of Savoy. So this place, uh, That's where the name came Yeah, from. so this place has been called Savoy for basically a thousand years. Wow. Yes. So um, the house that they built there became the home of the Earl of Lancaster and then his descendants. So they lived there throughout the next century. And then in the 14th century, the Strand was paved as far as the Savoy. And so remember, the Strand is that major thoroughfare. And then that's when it became a huge riverside palace of John of Gaunt. So he was the the nation's power broker at this time, the richest man in the kingdom after the king. Um, So he was a big deal. And then the, um, the Savoy was considered like the most magnificent house in England. Okay, so that area has been around, like, been uh, known to be pretty fancy for a while. Yeah, and even uh, Geoffrey Chaucer began writing the Canterbury Tales while working at the Savoy Palace as a clerk. 
Oh, so I did. Okay. It has some deep history. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, but unfortunately, that palace is no longer there because during the peasants' revolts uh, that happened in 1381, the rioters uh, blamed John of Gaunt for introducing the poll tax. Man, it's always taxes that get... I get it. We peasants (laughs) stirred up. We're due for a revolt (laughs) in this country. (laughs) Yeah. So they basically demolished the palace and everything in it. They threw everything into the river. So thanks for polluting it. But also imagine what's in that river. Uprising. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) After the revolt, it turned into an hospital by Henry the seventh and it stayed that way for about 200 years. Then in the 18th century it turns into a barracks the hospital complex remained in use as barracks and military and a military prison for most of the 18th century and in 1776 much of the structure was destroyed in a fire do you think it was the americans (laughs) (laughs) at the time it housed a military infirmary a prison recruiting state everything it had everything In the early 1800s, almost all of the remaining hospital buildings were demolished to make way for the approached road to the new Waterloo Bridge, and the property became a garbage dump. Yeah, so uh, whenever we are on the scene for the Savoy Hotel to be built, it's just basically a gigantic trash pile. So it's really impressive that the um, builder of the Savoy had this vision and could see past well it makes sense because it if he knew about the history and he knew that at one point it was a palace and you know that's where the noblemen lived why not yeah return it to its former glory but he also he i feel like he had a the man who started the savoy hotel had like a natural instinct for these things he saw the potential in a lot of different um like properties Yes, he definitely had vision. Mm-hmm. So, and and that man's name is Richard de Oily Cart. He was born May third, eighteen forty four, on Greek Street in Soho, which is only about a ten minute walk from the Savoy Estate. Uh, his father was an impoverished flute player, and his mother was the daughter of a vicar. Uh, her father did not consent to their marriage, so they eloped, and uh, basically they lived um, in. A little bit of a rough and tumble neighborhood at the start of their marriage. Their house was surrounded by a homeless shelter, pubs, a whorehouse, and the Royal Theater. So uh, (laughs) he really kind of grew up in his childhood in a really interesting place where all kinds of people lived. But uh, his father did become a partner in a music instrument manufacturing business eventually, which allowed them to make more money and move out to some nicer places a better neighborhood and so de oily was able to get like a really good education in uh, music languages um, all of that kind of stuff his um, family like saw that he had a talent for music and theater and and really tried to help as much as they could yeah they definitely embraced his creative side yeah which helps if you have a musician for a parent I mean, they sound like they didn't listen to the rules. They yeah. eloped. You know, music <laughs> yeah, they were definitely uh, had some individuality going on. They live next to a whorehouse. I mean, cool people. 
the oily joins his father's company, but he spends his free time performing like amateur plays and composing operettas. Um, he that's what he really wanted to do was basically be a composer. During this time, he became a fan of fellow composer Arthur Sullivan, who he invites to his opera. Sullivan sends back a note declining because he was out of town, but this is not the last that um, that we will see of Arthur Sullivan. Yeah, Dioli really is uh he was persistent. a pusher he reminds yeah. me of you like he, he was like oh i see somebody i'm actually i'm gonna get him <laughs> i'm actually flattered because this man was really successful he really is and so i guess being a pusher is a good thing yeah no it's a good thing like okay. they see something and they're like they don't let go of it because they see the value okay yeah but he i think also to see if a person's going to respond eventually, like to, to look at all the angles. Like he knew how he knew if there was an opening, he just had to push a little bit yeah, more. Exactly. It didn't sound, well, maybe there was some people that he really had to, but yeah. Okay. I'm flattered. Thank you. <laughs> so he stages another opera, but doesn't have that much success in it. So he sets up an office in his, in the back of his father's shop as a talent agent and the business slowly grows and he moves into his own office space. And meanwhile, his aunt arranges for him to be married to 17-year-old Blanche Prouse. Yeah. Is that how you say her That sounds good. Whom he met four years earlier when they acted together in an amateur play. They had two children, Lucas and Rupert. Just can't imagine being 13 years old and, like, meeting a guy in his 20s. And then a few years later, it's like, that's your husband now. Okay, so... I kind of could. Because <laughs> you ever, did you ever have like a crush when you were 13 with uh, like a older guy? Like not old, old, like but, no, uh, um, a teenage. Okay. Like maybe teenage. a celebrity. Yeah. Like, like, a, I think I feel like like it's 20, a, 21 would have probably been the oldest I would have. I, when I was 11, I had a crush on a 16 year old on a 17 year old or whatever. So like if you're telling a 13 year old meets, you know, okay, he's what, 20 at the time 23 22 or 23 because he was nine years older than her oh but that's when they got married when he was 24 no 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 this we a few years have passed it takes him a few years to <laughs> okay whatever yeah. anyways if you're 13 you're like he's cute and then a couple of years, you're like i'm ready <laughs> but yes it is creepy but i i can see how some gr- i doubt that's what happened but i can see how some yeah. girls i just remember i specifically remember being 17 and or around 17 and finding out like like the the different ages of the members of like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and like I want to say it was AJ that was like 27 and I was like ew he's too old (laughs) (laughs) and I was like but Justin Timberlake's only 18 so he's the cute one that's that's actually very healthy of you you don't have major daddy issues that's a good sign it'd be weird if you were like 27 Mm, give me some of that Yeah. yeah sign me up zaddy or whatever people say yeah that's like an old man right that's not even like <laughs> not even a 27 year old but to a 17 year old yeah I, that's too old anyway so around this time he goes to see a two-act burlesque named thespis arthur sullivan from before had written the score for it and a journalist named w.s gilbert had written the lyrics 
it was it did not do well the audiences didn't like it the critics didn't like it but the oily saw something special in it so he commissioned them to write a production for him and rented out um an opera theater to put it on um, unfortunately, he ran out of money and had to abandon it, but he tried again as soon as he could uh, when he was invited to manage a theater. What Doily, like his vision, he really wanted to bring quality light opera to London, something that would appeal to the rising middle class. Like he didn't want it to be too highbrow, like too over anybody's head, but he also wanted there to be quality fare that wasn't just pantomime and burlesque and things like that. Um, so, and he really felt like this partnership of Gilbert and Sullivan is was the team that could do it. So he had them write a one-act warm-up play before the main play that was being shown at the time called Trial by Jury. And it actually was a hit. It was a bigger hit than the headlining play. And so this is when he was really starts to get off the ground and was like, okay, now we have something. Yeah, so he it's pretty cool because he sounds like a pretty uh, revolutionary kind of man who sees something, wants it done, and makes it happen. Dioily gets Gilbert and Sullivan. He's going to make them make amazing plays. But their personal relationships are pretty interesting. So he becomes really good friends with Sullivan because Sullivan, uh, he comes from a poor Irish family and... He basically liked to party, like to to summarize. <laughs> yeah. um, and Dioily was like, "I'm down." You know, they were kind of like play a place. Well, I don't know if Dioily cheated or anything, but Sullivan definitely yeah, was Sullivan, a ladies' man. Yeah, he definitely loved his attention from the ladies. They yeah. they loved drinking, they loved feasting, they loved traveling. He he spent a lot of his money. Yeah, usually like fast in as they could make it. He spent it. Yeah, he played you know, cards and he drank a lot and, you know, gambling and all that stuff. There were definitely uh, specific personalities in this group and you can see who got along and who didn't. And I think Dioily was like a good balance of like, I'm the responsible one. I'm going to get things done, but I know how to party, but Mm -hmm. I also know my limits. And then Gilbert was totally different. He was from an upper middle class family of surgeons and he had a, wife and he didn't want to go and party and drink and he he sounded okay dull (laughs) well not dull compared to them he sounded anal yeah it wasn't just just like like a homebody like yeah well if that was the case then i don't think they would have had as many fights he sounded Mm. like he wanted things a certain way and he very much had disagreements with them and and it was like and he wasn't going to be as close to Dioily or Sullivan because he didn't really engage in their um, habits and yeah, you know, yeah. Hobbies. And just I mean, think about the differences in personality between musicians and lawyers. It's definitely some different lifestyles, and <laughs> I don't know. It depends on the lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> it really depends. That's fair. And depends at what part of their career too. <laughs> but. They, this is the team, basically, and over uh, the next few years, they have a lot of successful plays, and they start their own production company, schedule tours all over America. Basically, this is the start of Dioily really traveling and experiencing all different hotels, cities, uh, leisure, restaurants, just he's 
he kind of has the bug, like yeah. the travel bug. And the more you telling me I'm like him, I'm like, okay, I get it. I kind of like oh. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like, so he's, he's traveling all over Europe, all over America, and he's seeing the nightlife that all of these other places have. And he's really starting to see a gaping void <laughs> missing in London. Yeah, it basically inspires him. Mm -hmm. So he comes back and he wants to build a theater near the Savoy. And he calls it the Savoy Theater, right? It yeah, was so he builds it on part of that um, estate that had been where the palace was. He builds the Savoy Theater. Yeah, that opens in 1881, just to let you know where we are in history right now. <laughs> he also, light, it's uh, the building, The it's the first public building in the world to be lit solely on electricity which yeah was was a huge deal back then like the audience was actually a little terrified when he when he kind of had a whole spectacle and lit up the theater with the with incandescent bulbs and up to that point like gas lights would catch on fire all the time and that was that's why london got like burning down and stuff and so everybody was kind of freaked out that there were so many lights on at one time um but whenever he like showed them that they couldn't catch fire basically everybody was just entranced it was he was really ahead of his time and he actually um beat thomas edison to making like a a display of what electric lights looked like like edison i think had his demonstration two weeks after really joily had it gave his demonstration of the light bulbs in his theater so like he really was ahead of his time before the, the, the people with the patents even yeah he seemed to be like almost impatient mm-hmm with his like what he wanted to get done. Doily actually had to build his own power station in a shed beside the theater to power all of these lights. Um, and he, he did it with uh, steam engines. And it was before power plants existed. Like this was like the first thing of its oh. kind. He actually had his engineers were kind of flummoxed for a really long time about how to even pull it all off to light this whole theater. And they basically had to figure it out and get it done. So he was... That's really cool. Yeah, just amazing. So, but after the Savoy Theater and traveling so much, he's like, wait, I should make a hotel, a luxury hotel. People are going to want to come to London, experience this you know, place where the rich and famous and all these amenities will exist and there's going to be delicious food. And so he opens the Savoy Hotel on August 6th, 1889. It was designed by architect Thomas Edward Colcott, who designed several important buildings in London in the Victoria era, including the Palace Theater. So a little bit about the Savoy Hotel, it was... I guess it was the first of its kind in London. Yes. Before that, it kind of like the fancy hotels weren't that great. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have indoor plumbing. The food was not good and could make you sick. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there was no like when we think of nightlife and entertainment and going out to restaurants and things like that now, like that really didn't exist in London. Most of the restaurants were subpar. 
I mean, there was entertainment in the form of going to the theaters, but there wasn't the nightlife of like going out and being seen in public anywhere besides these um, theaters. So he knew that a hotel could be a place to make that happen. And London was bigger than all of the other major metropolises. Like it was bigger than New York. It was bigger than Paris, but it did not have the hospitality industry to match. I wonder why. But he, I mean, he, I mean, until him. Yeah, until him. He changed the game. Yeah. So London had two big hotels at the time that were established, the Langham and Westminster Palace, but both lackluster, disgusting food. So he, a big part of the hotel is that he wanted it to have a world-class restaurant that would focus on French cuisine, which has long been considered one of the best. But he also wanted to bring in food from um, Russia, some German dishes, Indian dishes, because he knew that he was going to have international guests and he wanted to appeal to their tastes as well. And I guess at the time, uh, turtles were really turtle soup important yeah. for Americans and green corn because he brought those in specifically for American travelers. He really liked America and he was really mm-hmm. inspired by America, especially the hospitality. Yeah. And I never thought we were so amazing back yeah, in the day. Back I guess, in the day, I guess. <laughs> we were doing something right. I, he was, he really liked turtle soup. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he, he's getting inspiration from everywhere and he really makes it his mission to get a French chef or a chef that's not British no shade yeah. to the British food, but he kind of was like, we need to make this good and interesting. <laughs> so he, he goes around different to different hotels, different restaurants, and he poaches the workers there. He's yeah. like, oh, you're really good. You want a job that pays a lot more in a mm-hmm. really cool hotel like i don't know what he said to some of them yeah he did not hesitate to offer way more money than what people were already making like he knew the way (laughs) to a person's heart so another thing that was such uh that was really important to doily was that he knew that these uh especially the nouveau riche in this era had this need to give evidence of their wealth They, they wanted to show off their wealth and their power So he's hoping that a luxury hotel is going to give them a social place to basically come and look at each other and see like who's wearing what and who's doing what. Because normally uh, the rich would only socialize at each other's homes. Like maybe they would go out to the opera, but there aren't any good restaurants. There aren't any good places to go. So mostly they would just have dances and dinners at their own homes. In either in London or out in the country. So for him to, to actually create a nightlife and get them to come out was a really big deal. And he also made it a point that women could feel comfortable and socialize there because a lot of they weren't allowed to in a lot of places. Yes. So he was the first place to allow unchaperoned women to come into the restaurant and eat and have dinners or tea together and be social they had screens that they had available to put up around the tables in case the women like wanted to have a little bit more privacy but that didn't last very long and soon it was just like normal if you realize there's like a common theme with hotels and breaking um social norms yeah social norms and boundaries like especially with women and people of color Mm -hmm. and all this stuff and just testing out new things and Mm -hmm. experimenting um, and he 
he was on the forefront he's just like let's do this like he didn't care he didn't seem super opinionated about politics that much Mm -mm. he just wanted to make this hotel and have a good time and eat good food uh and so the savoy hotel was the first hotel to use all electric lighting and it was also the first in england to use elevators imported from america which he called ascending rooms and i think (laughs) lift is a lot easier yeah ascending rooms is really cute though yeah I'm going in an ascending room right now. <laughs> it sounds like it's like it's ethereal, almost yeah. like you're going towards heaven. Uh, the elevators were really important because before the top floors of hotels were usually where where the um, employees stayed because the more stairs you have to go up, the less valuable the room. But now with elevators, the top floors could actually be the more valuable rooms because they have the best views. And since the hotel is situated on the riverside, they have amazing views. If you go to the Savoy's website, you can actually see the view from some of the rooms. It's gorgeous. So the elevator really helped make help make that possible. Yeah, change the game. Yeah. A lot. Um, he also really upped the bathroom game oh, this in is so hotels. I love this. He had 400 guest rooms and 67 bathrooms. So to us, we're like, wait, what? That, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. But at the time to compare the Victoria hotel had four bathrooms for 500 guests. And this was considered completely normal. Like the builder that Doily hired to, to, do this was shocked at this number of bathrooms and asked if the guests were going to be amphibious oh my god (laughs) yeah they everyone was so confused by this number of bathrooms it's still not a lot of bathrooms 67 who had the bathroom were they public bathrooms yeah well a lot of the rooms were like they were multi-room suites and so they probably shared a bathroom i bet for a lot of the rooms are they going to be amphibious? That's cute. <laughs> yeah. And they had, so the bathrooms had tubs, you know, fitted in just like our bathrooms do now. And that back then was not normal. They would have, normally they would bring in a portable tub that would be filled with hot water and then it would be taken away again once you were done. So the fact that you could just go into a room and have a bath that didn't leave. Was... Well, they had, it, they had plumbing, right? Yes. And they had plumbing that had, they had hot and cold water on tap. Oh, like today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you're it lucky, was amazing. your hot water's working. Like, the oily, like, uh, was, they said that he went all around to the different showrooms, like, getting into the tubs and, and like, trying to figure out what the best tub was oh himself. Oh, my God. Yeah. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. Tub shopping. <laughs> it does. I would do that. And the tubs must have been really cool looking and small. <laughs> yes. But very uh, innovative. He just, he was a cool guy. So far, <laughs> Dioyli goes around poaching workers from all different places, and he wants to get the best hotel manager there is. So Dioyli wants to get Caesar Ritz, who manages the Grand Hotel in Monte Carlo, as his hotel manager, and he was. Uh, basically he went there, he was enamored with the Grand Hotel when he visited in 1887 and became fixated on poaching Ritz for the Savoy. Then he ran into Ritz again in 1888 in Baden-Baden. I'm not saying that right. Baden-Baden. Baden-Baden. 
I read things. Weird. It's in Germany. Like it's I think it's a coastal German place or like by on a river or something. It's but it was like a place a hotel, where all the rich though. people went. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he offers him a job there, um, claiming his hotel was going to change London London and um Eventually, Ritz came to the hotel's opening as a guest and was so impressed that he agreed to work there in April 1890. After Dioli told him he could assemble his team as he saw fit and he gave him a very generous salary. So, yeah. So next up, um, Dioli really wanted this um, chef and he knew that once he had Ritz, that was the way to get this chef whose name was... um, Auguste Escoffier. Escoffier. French. Yeah. We're going to say a lot of names with bad French accents. Um, <laughs> Escogo. <Okay. laughs> just that. So he, uh, Escoffier worked with Ritz in Monte Carlo. And De Oily insisted that Ritz bring him along, that he had to be part of the deal. He was considered the best chef in the world and was actually known as the king of chefs and the chef of kings. So one of the reasons that Doily wanted him, not only because he would elevate the Savoy restaurant to top tier level, but also because he is the chef of kings, he was a favorite chef of the Prince of Wales and his inner circle because the Prince of Wales was kind of a foodie. And he and Doily really, really wanted the Prince of Wales to be a guest at the Savoy. That was the type of clientele he was trying to get. And so he he basically bought Ritz to get to Escoffier to get to the Prince of Wales. He knew what he was doing. He was like, I follow the trail of wealth. Yes. (laughs) Um, he, He had a vision and he went for it. And yes, this guy... The Ritz guy is the same guy that makes the Ritz Hotel later. But that's a different story, yeah. if anyone's wondering. <laughs> um, and the chef, he uh, he had some interesting dishes. But to call the Prince of Wales a foodie, <laughs> as much as you can be a foodie uh, during that time, because food was yeah. weird. Anyone who is excited to eat frog legs in a champagne jelly, uh, that's, that's a... Yeah. yeah, a lot of the food they described, I'm like, okay. it doesn't sound great to, to modern ears, but you know, you don't knock it till you've tried it. I'm never gonna I'm try, never turtle, gonna try soup. turtle soup. No, yeah, no, they really liked reptiles back then. <sighs> yeah, and he, uh, the chef Escafour, am I saying this right? Escafour, Escafour, I think it's Escafier, Escafier, I can't, but I don't know. I don't, speak I, French. Don't, I don't know, know why. the Francais. I am so bad with French a- accents. As you know, I dated someone who had a French name and I could not say his name for the life of me. He was just always like, that's he not my hated name. hated it. He's like, you're not saying my name right. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> like, I don't know what you want from me. Um, like, my name's not that easy either. <laughs> so I understand. But so it's Escafier? Sure. Okay. I think, I think that sounds the most right from the spelling. Yeah. So he... He was a weirdo, right? He was like really intense. Um, yeah, he he had a military background and he brought it into the kitchen. So he basically invents the way that kitchens are, that restaurant kitchens are run to this day. This is this oh. was him. So he has this kitchen set up known as the Kitchen Brigade. And it's it's the setup that we have now where different chefs do different parts of the process. So whereas before... 
one chef would do every single step of a dish. And so like if you ordered an omelet, it might take that chef 15 minutes to make your dish. But when you have all the different people doing the different steps of the prep along the way, it made it only five minute wait. So he believed that your food should get to you quickly and still warm. And that was revolutionary <laughs> for wow. the time. It's really the start of uh, the new century. Yeah. yeah. And he also uh, ref- did not allow his cooks to drink or smoke while they were working in the kitchen, which was but after outside. Yeah, the like outside on your break. Fine. But yeah, but before like during that time, it was very normal for everybody to just be smoking and drinking while they cooked. That's weird. I, I, I know might they... be why the food was not Bad. so great. I mean the sanitary uh, <laughs> standards back then were not that great. So he probably, the thing is that his motivation was very different than ours. Like ours is like, that's gross. And yeah. And his was like, this is inefficient. <laughs> yeah. This is, he's like, you're ruining my food. Like I'm the best. Those frog legs cannot smell like cigarette yeah. smoke. Uh, <laughs> so the, the, the restaurant basically is very successful. And in the hotel, there's a lot of different like, restaurants and bars so there's like a grill for more mm-hmm. casual food fare and then the the main restaurant for evening dinners and then they also have the american bar and that opens in 1893 and is the longest running cocktail bar in the world so of course since the hotel is so fancy it's going to attract really fancy famous personalities and back in the day, that included all the power for like politicians, actors, painters, but there's they weren't really actresses back then. They they, they didn't have didn't. celebrity. No. Yeah. Oh, Sarah Bernhardt was like she's like the well, first because, famous like, they're actress. actors. Well, actresses and like opera singers basically. They were like the actresses of the Right. They, but they were most actresses and theater was looked down upon until maybe now it it started to change but sarah bernhardt i'm pretty sure is like the first what they call celebrity yeah because she was so well known and she traveled everywhere and she has a crazy story did you read it no i haven't gotten there yet oh my god this woman (laughs) um yeah she she basically worked up until like her final days and she traveled everywhere and she had multiple affairs with several different people. Like it was nonstop when she was old. She was dating guys like 37 years younger than her. It's not the first time. Oh my God. Yeah. It, it's not like the a one-off thing. It's like over and over she'll be having affairs. People are like in love with her. She was very charismatic. And even in reviews, they would say she was great. They were like, this is not a beautiful woman. <laughs> But whatever, she's so yeah, she uh, mesmerizing. Yeah, she had it, and um, she she was really really interest interesting. You should read her biography. I want to read a a real biography about her because she sounded fascinating. And then there was Claude Monet. Am I, is it Monet or Monet? Ma- Monet. Yeah. Monet. Monet is, is with the A. Yeah. Okay. This one is Monet. Okay. So he hung out there, right? Yeah. He painted um s- uh, several uh of the view of his room is several of his paintings like out of his out of his window he could see like Charing is it Charing Cross or Charing Cross we don't know how to pronounce any of these things because I didn't listen to the audio book this time American I'm so sorry 
Charing Cross Station, I'm gonna guess, uh, was his view. And he actually uh, loved um, how foggy London was. He was thought that that made it a more appealing place to look at. And so he would like paint the foggy view and like the train station with its its smoke and steam and everything. And I think that uh, the oily actually purchased some of the paintings that he made of the view. Oh, this smart man. Mm-hmm. I was saying, the oily. He was, he knew what he was doing. And who else? Oh, Winston Churchill and his mother, Lady Randolph Tr- Churchill. And that's another uh, character. So if you think Winston Churchill is interesting, he gets it from someone. Yeah. His mom, again, <laughs> he, another play. He got thing. it from his mama. <laughs> no, second one. So what, Victorian women, I don't think get enough credit. You know, we just think they're one way. And I think that that society wanted them to be a certain way, but fascinating yeah. women. They, so, did, they did not all stick to that. No. So Lady Randolph Churchill also had a pretty interesting life. Yeah. First of all, American. Oh, yeah. She was American. Yeah. She, she was, was born, born in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah, Her name that? was Jenny Jerome. Was that <laughs> yeah, it? Jenny Jerome. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, she's from Brooklyn. That's why I relate. <laughs> So, yeah, and then she marries uh, Winston Churchill's father, who she has two kids, and the parentage of those children are questioned a lot. She, uh, but then everyone's like, no, they look like him. And so (laughs) basically, they believe that those were his children, but she had a lot of affairs, and same situation as Sarah Bernhardt. She was a lot older and she had a lot of younger men after her, I believe. From what I read, I, I think there was some situation like that. Oh, yeah. Even her third husband was younger than Winston Churchill at the time. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. I also love that. Um, so her, I believe it was her father's mistress was like a well-to-do society lady named Mrs. Ronald's. And she became like BFFs with her father's mistress and they would hang out together. And I'm like, well, that's where she learned. It. Yeah, of course. <laughs> this it makes total sense. Now you understand. But she also she was so um, like wanted and charismatic and, and people fawned over her. And I told you, I looked at a picture of her. She wasn't a bad looking lady, but like, my God. The way that people would talk about her. So she had a very, I'm assuming, charismatic personality like Winston Churchill and was really witty and clever because he didn't get that from, he got that from someone and I'm assuming it was her. Next person, Puccini. Who is Puccini? I think he was an opera star. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now I remember. And Gucci was uh, a part of this club too. Oh. But he was the, um, that comes later. He... He did like the luggage or something. And then now there's like a Gucci. Oh yeah, now there's a Gucci suite. Yeah. And some other important people that stayed at the hotel, the Vanderbilts, because they still eat everywhere. The Roosevelt's, George Bernard Shaw, Emile Zola. Who is that? So he was um, a novelist and he was really famous. He's from uh, France. He actually was involved later in... um, publishing a 
uh, basically a critique of how the government was handling the Dreyfus affair that happened. Oh, that's him. Yeah. And so he had to flee Paris to not get um, arrested for that. And yeah. And so this was before all of that happened. And so he was there to he came to the hotel while he and his wife were there to observe the poor and needy in london which i guess they were doing from afar since they were (laughs) staying at the savoy but like the next time he came to london he was one of the poor and needy because he didn't have time to grab anything as before he fled he just he came like with his pajamas wrapped in newspaper like in nothing else damn well, I hope he wasn't judging them too harsh then. <laughs> no, and eventually, um, like sometime in the 20th century, I believe, like the Catholic Church and a bunch of other like people op- officially apologized to his memory, I guess, for... It was memory. Yeah, so because I think, he's already, I think he was already dead by then. But yeah, for like for causing him all of that problem when he was standing up well, for something that was so clearly wrong. <laughs> uh, I Didn't they eventually have to apologize to the Dreyfus family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the, I actually know, I remember learning about it and then I uh, read a lot more into it when I was watching this documentary. And so it's, a, it's actually really horrible, but uh, man, just critiquing. And he wasn't Jewish, right? No. Yeah, no. He just saw the injustice and was like, guys, wow. what, like, this is so like you're inept and anti-Semitic and everybody knows it. <laughs> Okay, other person, Nellie Melba. I love that name, Nellie, for a girl. I think that's cute. It is really cute. Um, she was an opera singer, a really famous one at the time. Okay. And I have a feeling the chef had a crush on her because he made a lot of food for her and he named a <laughs> well, lot he, of dishes after her. That was his, I meant to put more in here, but that was like his thing. Anytime they had a really famous person come stay, he would like make a signature dish and name it after them. Like, Yeah, so he but would, more than one? Uh, I don't know. Well, this one, it's because he ma- gave her two dishes because one was when she was on a diet and one was when she wasn't. Oh. So if you've ever heard of Melba toast, it was actually named after Nellie Melba. I don't know that you can invent toast, but <laughs> what I mean. But wait, is that kind of an insult to her? Because <laughs> like calling someone human Melba toast is a big it is and now, so, but yeah. yeah. Um, at the at the time, it was just like, hey, I respect that you're on a diet. Here's the plainest thing I can give oh you. My God. But when she was not on a diet, he uh, made peaches Melba for her, which was an elaborate affair. So he would basically make peach sorbet, cover it in like a raspberry sauce, and then he would make one of those, you know, like those cages that they make out of spun sugar in mm-hmm. really fancy restaurants? He would do that, and then he would serve all of that in a swan sculpture carved from ice. Wow. Yeah. He definitely He had was a crush all on about her. the presentation. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's elaborate. That's like. That's a lot. Yeah. That sounds good, actually. It does. At, at the, the time, yeah, like to us now, we're like peaches and raspberries. So I was like, what's the big deal? But at the time, it was like very exotic. So the most interesting guest that I think the hotel has had during this time was Oscar Wilde. Obviously a famous writer, poet, playwright, novelist. Uh, and he it was very well known. He was gay. And that was a part of... Kind if of, it wasn't well known, he certainly made sure it was well known yeah. after. <laughs> and it has to do with the scandal. It's not just like a fact we're throwing in. But basically, 
he would hang out at the hotel a lot. And yes, so he was a client of the oily before the hotel ever existed. Uh, He actually uh, sent the oily, like set him up with a successful speaking tour throughout America. Uh, He would talk about the English Renaissance in art and interior design. And he actually kind of had this, this reputation of being like, very smartly dressed and kind of flamboyant and very he was very into aesthetics like he it was art and beauty were very important core parts of his personality (laughs) (laughs) but he um he had a, a boyfriend at the time who this boyfriend happened to also be the boyfriend previously or the crush of D'Oily's son. <laughs> yes. D'Oily's uh, oldest son, Lucas was a schoolmate of this guy. They went to Oxford together and it, he, Lucas was actually deeply in love with him. And then his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas, better known to his friends as Bosey meets Oscar Wilde and, drops his relationship <laughs> with Lucas and is like all in on Oscar. <laughs> yeah. That's so nice of him. But I mean, wouldn't you, you got Oscar Wilde or little Lucas. <laughs> You're going to go for it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like Oscar Wilde was really witty and funny, but he also had kind of like a, a look that I would not have gone for. Yeah. But you're looking at him as a woman. True. Okay. I don't know how to look at him as a man. <laughs> and I'm sure, I mean, like people didn't just back then it wasn't even about how you looked, obviously yeah. it was like your status. And, and I think people were easily charmed. I think they were, life was hard. And if you had any kind of wit and humor and mm-hmm. it made uh, life a little more bearable. Yeah. They were like, Whoa, yeah, you're hot. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Douglas and Oscar have a, a, a tempestuous affair, basically. Uh, Wild, you know, tried to be like, like he was not discreet, but uh, apparently Douglas was not discreet at all. <laughs> was kind of pretty open about it. And he actually initiates Wild into the underground of gay prostitution. There were uh, boys known as rent boys who were basically working class male prostitutes. Very subtle. Yeah. (laughs) That they would like bring to the hotel and have parties with. Lord Alfred's father, who was the Marquess of Queensbury. What's Queensbury or where? Uh, I guess that's like his title. I don't know where Queensbury is. Oh, that's a title. I thought that was like a restaurant or something. Like a like a competing hotel, Queensberry. <laughs> no, it's his title. Oh, okay, forget it then. Um, <laughs> Continue. Um, so this guy sounds like any dad that you wouldn't necessarily want to have to come out to. He was kind of a a jerk. Didn't love uh, that his son was he didn't flamboyantly gay. <laughs> you know that that. <laughs> 
that very rare exception to the rule Victorian father who doesn't <laughs> love his gay son. So he he and his son had a very contentious relationship because, you know, Alfred was pretty open about his proclivities and his dad was like, no. So he confronted Wilde and Alfred like repeatedly about the nature of their relationship and Wilde was always able to be like, no, you're misjudging. You're reading into things like chill out. Uh, but apparently he even went to Oscar's house one time and kind of confronted him basically and said, if I see you with my son in public again, I'm oh going to beat the God. shit out of you. Hey. Yeah. So um, Oscar claims that he threatened to shoot the dad but the dad claims that oscar was like a coward so who knows i feel like that's not oscar wilde's style to claim and shoot anyone but to spread a rumor that yeah (laughs) exactly yeah so then in 1895 the marquess again left his calling card at uh the club that oscar was a member of and on the card it said for oscar wilde posing sodomite well he meant it to say posing sodomite but he misspelled it and put somdomite so i feel like it's it's less of a burn if you don't know how to spell the word you're trying to insult someone with so that's not great alfred kind of like riles wild up and convinces him that he should uh prosecute his father for libel and if he had is found guilty of this then he would uh like have to be sentenced to like hard labor or something but basically like since he wrote it on a note and left it for him it was a public accusation that that wild was committing sodomy so he you know he had a a libel case against him but that meant that queensbury could only avoid conviction for this by demonstrating that what he said was in fact true so this opens up a trial where it is to his benefit to prove that that oscar wilde is in fact um homosexual and is acting on it so he hires a bunch of private detectives to find like evidence for this so after the trial goes on for a while they tell him hey we found the prostitutes and they're willing to testify and so oscar wilde is like oh okay i was just kidding and i would like to drop this now oh yeah yeah and so the marquess is found not guilty but now there's enough evidence to show that wilde has been committing these crimes and so he himself now gets charged and does end up going to prison for two years. He's he's has to do hard labor in prison for two years because of it. Yeah, but a big part of them finding him guilty is the some of the employees that worked at the hotel. Yes, and that's really what convinced um, convinced whoever convicted him because or the judges, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they know how serious they take their jobs and they're very professional and discretion is like the of utmost importance. And if someone at the hotel says something happens, they're like, okay, there, it happened. And I guess one of the guys claimed that he went up and he saw him in bed with another guy. And then someone else also claimed that he had sex with him. I think so. Yeah. yeah. 
that was dumb on his part to go after this guy. <laughs> it really and open was. That like, he, like all of his friends were like, "Hey, don't do this. This is stupid." But never, never listen to the son feuding with their father. They're not going to give you sound advice. That's yeah. all emotion. But yeah, and actually, Ritz, the manager of the Savoy, was very embarrassed that his employees actually. Um, testified against wild he believed that they had basically failed one of their guests and that because it was not their job to like put their noses in his business and like he he thought it was terrible that the employees had testified i kind of agreed with him because yeah oh, like, I do what too. did they yeah. get out of it yeah it's especially like, like if they if they were testifying because of a murder then sure but and also they look bad because if you go in front of the judge and say yeah i slept with him now who what do you look like yeah that means you're guilty of being a sodomite also and then no one's gonna want you and or yeah. hire you yeah or whatever. so yeah definitely. At, de- during that time all oh this is wrong obviously. yeah but, you know, <laughs> yeah you, gotta, exactly. you have to work with the system at the time so but but this ruins oscar wilde's reputation and life basically yeah after he this. after he gets out of prison he uh goes to france he never comes to ireland or britain again and he dies in paris in 1900 uh at the hotel uh dl says so he, he also um ends up being poor and bankrupt yeah he was yeah the the whole because he had to pay for the marquess's legal fees since the marquess was found not guilty and that bankrupted him oh right wow that man must have felt really good he won (laughs) oh my god but did he does he talk to his son (laughs) (laughs) did he make peace with his son Uh, yeah of course not so yeah that was an that was a hollow victory but yeah so uh oscar wilde he he doesn't do well but he still he still wrote some stuff right he published yes he continued writing mm-hmm. he, he de- i think that what he wrote after had a definite different tone to it than what he had written before it, it got a little dark mm. right that makes sense i mean the portrait of dorian gray is pretty dark yeah but, but it's like dark with the twist yeah <laughs> And it was still like founded in all of that, like beauty and youth. And whereas this, like what he wrote afterward was, was basically like about his spiritual journey through his trials and like the rhythms of prison life. Oh God. (laughs) He dies in a hotel in Paris and uh, it's alleged that he died. He did die of meningitis, but we don't know if it was meningitis due from syphilis or from an injury he had from prison and his son or a relative after he died was like it's the injury but a lot of people are like it's syphilis from the prostitutes and it could be both it it could be both (laughs) it could be either i would definitely not rule syphilis out that was going around (laughs) yeah but he it's sad it's sad either way poor oscar Wilde didn't didn't go out with a bang kind of like um a lot of writers died really sad yeah ways um but that was like one of the major scandals that had that was the hotel was involved but that didn't exactly involve the hotel you know what i mean yeah because <laughs> yeah like the, the hotel was scandals, like the backdrop for yeah, what was going on it but. happened there but another f- scandal that has to do with the hotel is that after Dioli 
searched all over the world and then poached um, the chef and the best chef around and the best manager around, uh, they ended up being total assholes. <laughs> yeah. And like, stealing from him, basically. Yeah. And he like gave them unheard of salaries at the time and they still stole. So one of the team members that Ritz insisted on bringing was the maitre d' of the hotel, uh, Louis Eschenard. And that was one of the people who was helping them steal and also was stealing himself. So they would take money like they would take kickbacks from suppliers. They were stealing wine. They would take, they would like have food delivered to their houses instead of to the hotel. It, it amounted into, to being like, I think over a, like a million pounds in today's money. Oh, wow. Yeah. They did a lot of embezzlement. Yeah. It, they was, were, and that's what we know of. Yeah, exactly. That's, this, that's only from how, like how far back they checked the books because yeah. like, they didn't check it all the way. It wasn't until like in the end, the oily even kind of put off checking on it until it was a problem that could not be ignored. And basically the investors in the hotel were like, we have to look into this right right away. Yeah, that's really it's just a, such a level of like ungratefulness. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it was like to work at the hotel. And, and, all that and stuff, it's but- not like this was Ritz's only job. He also managed other places. He had a restaurant. He worked at other hotels because some guests would complain that he was not like at the Savoy enough, that he was neglecting his duties as manager there. Oh. So he was. And of course, at the time, he and Escoffier were already working on opening their own hotel the ritz <laughs> so they were ready to escape so th- i'm sure that's probably what they were using a yeah. lot of that money for yeah so that was uh that was pretty heartbreaking i think for Dioli. not just financially but on a personal level yeah because he invested so much into them and he admired them so much uh but as that happened Dioli goes and he decides he's gonna go and check out other properties to see if he could buy them and make them into hotels. And he ends up buying a boarding house near Hyde Park and he transforms it into the Claridge's Hotel, which is another famous fancy hotel in London. Yeah, this one was on a much smaller scale. He wanted it to be like cozy and quaint. And also it's in a neighborhood. And I think that the neighborhood was relieved that he was going to keep it small. Like they didn't want a gigantic Savoy kind of messing with their area. But he still was a perfectionist about like how things should be managed yeah. and like all the fancy stuff due to failing health and things like that. I think his momentum dropped a little bit because this was during this was 1900, 1901. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also had a fallout with Gilbert and Su- Sullivan. Uh, they always had quarrels. They always had issues, but. Then there was like some big issue about the carpet. <laughs> yeah. So he Doily replaced the carpet in the theater and it was very expensive. And he um, Gilbert had the problem. Yeah. Gilbert had the problem. Um, and so this so, so Doily owned the theater. And so Gilbert was like, hey, you own the theater. This should be a theater cost like this should be a cost that you have to handle this should not be a cost that our production company handles this is this is not costumes this is not scripts or musicians like this is the theater so you need to be paying for this not us 
and Doily disagreed. And Sullivan was like, Doily's my best friend, so I guess I'll agree <laughs> with him. And Gilbert was like, you assholes. <laughs> right. So that, I mean, it sounded like that was just the tip of the iceberg, that there was a lot more underneath and that kind of broke. Yeah. Well, years of tension at yeah. that point, <laughs> them not always getting along. Yeah. But then um, even after that happens, years pass and uh, they do reconcile, but we, but they're still, it's still not the same. Yeah. And then Sullivan gets sick and passes away. And that really, yeah. that really upsets Dioily. Like, yeah. And Dioily at the time, his health is so bad that he couldn't go to the funeral. He had to just like watch what he could see of it out of his window. Right. And then eventually he does die in 1901. Yeah. I think he has a dropsy he... and like cardiac arrest. What is dropsy? Uh, it was a term used for many centuries to define a syndrome of fluid overload and signified the manifestations of the syndrome of congestive heart failure. Okay. So he had some, he had heart disease. Yeah. And that ends part one. We will pick up in part two with his youngest son, Rupert, taking over. And we have a lot of good stuff to come. Like you thought Oscar Wilde was a scandal? Oh no. <laughs> There's a lot more scandals there's, that are happening here. I mean, it is London. and princes and murders and overdoses and all kinds of good stuff. Thanks for listening to Hotel History. You can follow us on most social media platforms, Patreon and Substack by searching for Hotel History or Hotel History Podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so we can reach more listeners.